Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, what amazing songs. It's to be reminded of the fact that one day we will see you, we will be with you forever and ever. And all of that is possible because of the redemption accomplished by your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, this morning we are reminded once again that in anticipation of that wonderful time when we will be with you and we will no longer live in a broken, dying world, we still do exist in this world. And Father, we don't only want to exist, we actually want to be people who are used by you in a mighty way to be a testimony for Christ here in this world. And yet, Father, there are many trials that we face. There are many hurts and pains that we have. There is much baggage from our experiences. Lord, dying loved ones, sick loved ones, those who have passed away and are now with you. Father, this past year, we're reminded of the fact that you have taught us much through all of these things, but we pray for your encouragement and your comfort upon your people this morning. Lord, for all of us, to some extent or another, we feel and and we experience the weight every single day of a broken world. So, Father, help us to trust you. Help us to rely not on our own circumstances being favorable, but help us to rely and rest upon you. Help us to be reminded of the fact that because Christ has died and paid for our sins sufficiently and He has risen from the dead and He's ascended to Your right hand, that we have hope regardless of our circumstances. Help us to live well under those. Help us to rejoice in the midst of our trials. Remind us of our great hope. Even this morning as we look at Your Word and we continue to glean and learn from the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we want to be reminded of His greatness His wondrous glory, how He lived, how He was resolved to glorify You and go to the cross and pay for our sins. And Father, this morning I pray for those those who are here who don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, that Lord, today would be the day of salvation, that today would be the day where they would call upon a gracious God who offers free forgiveness, reconciliation, forgiveness from their rebellion and sin, because of Christ and what He has done on the cross, who has paid for their sins, risen from the dead, conquered sin and death. May they trust Him. May they find a gracious God. And may they go from enemies of you to children of God this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11 is our text this morning. Yes, we will get through 11 verses. I know last week you were shocked that we got through 10 of them. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. And if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, in honor of God's Word, please stand. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Always remember that this is God's Word. Amen? Mark 14, verse 1. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly, I say to you, Wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message is Jesus Prepares for His Death. Jesus Prepares for His Death. As you know, this last year has been a year of transition for many people. Some people have transitioned from 
one job to another because of obviously opportunities that have presented themselves or maybe they've lost their job and picked up another one so they've transitioned from one job to another other people have transitioned from you know a living situation to another and um, speaking of transitions by the way today and this young man has a special place in my heart is a day of transition for one particular young man by the name of Adam Barnfather Adam is with us today but he's going to be Uh, moving to Idaho. Some of you know about that. And so tonight is going to be a special time at the Barn Fathers, his parents, John and Becky's house, this evening, just saying goodbye to Adam. So please make sure that if you are able to stop by, you do that. But this is a time of transition even for him and for many people, right? In the midst of everything that's been going on. Well, today in the Gospel of Mark is a time of transition in the narrative of Mark, where we transition today from the Olivet Discourse to a sermon by Jesus, by our Lord, where he has pulled back the curtain and he showed us the future things, the end of days. He's shown us what will transpire in the last days, culminating in his second coming. That's been all of chapter 13 of Mark. And now we transition from that, from being reminded and learning that we have a sure and wonderful hope, to now back to the present where we are reminded What makes those future things, those future promises that will be given to us at the arrival of Christ, what makes those promises possible, namely the death of Christ, His suffering, His death, His resurrection? We transition into that. For there is no future glory for us, beloved. No future glory for the believer by faith in Christ exists if Jesus doesn't go through His passion through his suffering, through his death on the cross. And so this is now the focus of Mark chapters 14 through 16 that we transition into. Now remember, this is Passion Week. Passion Week, a very critical, monumental time in the life of Israel. This is the time of the great feasts in Palestine, where thousands of people, Jews from all over the place, outside of Palestine and proselytes from all over the place are are pouring into Jerusalem to celebrate, to worship, to offer their sacrifices and give their alms to the Lord in the temple. The atmosphere is busy. The atmosphere is energetic. The atmosphere is electric. You can hardly move around. You have to move very slowly because of how much people traffic there is in Palestine. There's a lot going on. And it's been a full week for our Lord. On Sunday, if you remember, Jesus finally arrived to the great city of Jerusalem, not in great pomp, proud as a human king, but in great humility and in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, Jesus arrives to Jerusalem, enters the great city, seated on a donkey. That's in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. In great humility, the king arrives. Then on Monday, if you remember, Jesus, after having peeked into the temple on Sunday night after that arrival into Jerusalem. He peeks into the temple on Sunday night. And then Monday morning, as he and his disciples head back from Bethany, about two miles away, into Jerusalem, he curses a fig tree on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to the temple, symbolizing his judgment of Israel as a nation for their idolatry and their false worship. And then he goes right into the temple. And what does he do? He boldly cleanses it, right? Because the temple had become a circus, somewhat of a circus, a house of merchandise rather than a house of worship, a center for worship. Tuesday, then, was a full day. From morning until night, Jesus is continually engaged in heated discussions with the religious leaders controversies and heated discussions over authority and the nature of his authority. Who do you think you are? They would ask of him doing all of these things. And then controversies over politics and controversies over government and our responsibility to government controversies over worship and the nature of worship controversies over marriage in connection with the theological matter of the resurrection from the dead that the Sadducees did not affirm because they rejected the supernatural on and on and on these discussions and controversies are going all designed 
by the religious leaders to, to discredit Jesus and to find something wrong with him so that they might kill him, put him at the cross and kill him. Well, finally, toward evening, on Tuesday evening, Jesus himself, even after all of this, goes on the attack after repeatedly being leveled with questions aimed at discrediting him. And then it was after all of that on Tuesday night, at dusk on Tuesday, while overlooking the temple from across the Kidron Valley, that the Lord Jesus preached his Olivet Discourse, foretelling his disciples of the last days, culminating in his second coming. That's the context leading into Mark chapter 14. And now the Lord transitions, as I mentioned, from future things back to the present, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection that is going to make that future hope possible as he goes to the cross to pay for sins. Take note that this is now Wednesday of Passion Week. Wednesday of Passion Week. Now, as I've told you, as we look at this passage, verses 1 through 11, as I've told you before, Mark loves sandwiches. No, not food, okay? I know I'm in danger of making you guys hungry right now already. Don't think about food or sandwiches. But I'm talking about a, a literary device. Mark loves to take two similar accounts and put them together and in the middle of the two, sandwich in something that he desires to emphasize. Something that he desires for us to walk away with, especially. And that's what we have here in this particular passage. Verses 1 and 2, and then verses 10 and 11, the bread parts, if you will, at the beginning and the end, speak to the enemies of Jesus. The conspirators and the conspiracy, if you will, in verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 11. And then sandwiched in the middle, in verses 3 through 9, is this great commendation of a devoted woman. Of one who offers worship to Jesus. So as we look at this wonderful passage in our Lord's preparation for his death, I want you to consider first and foremost, Jesus' foes. Jesus' foes in verses 1 and 2. Jesus' enemies, his conspirators are here. Mark wants us to know that they've been behind the scenes the whole time, and here they are again in the aftermath of the Olivet Discourse. Here are Jesus' conspirators, and they come during a very strategic time, don't they? Look at verse 14. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. Never just bypass those details in a passage, okay? Because Mark, in verse 14, pinpoints for us the specific strategic timing of the events leading to Jesus' betrayal. He says, two days away. This tells us that this is now Wednesday. And we know this because the Passover animals were all to be slain by 3 p.m. on Friday of Passover week. And then the Passover meal was to be eaten at sundown of Friday. So this is Wednesday of Passion Week now. And again, you have to understand just how strategic all of this is. This is according to the great foreknowledge of God that this is happening exactly at this time, during this time. When Jews and proselytes poured in from everywhere to the great city of Jerusalem in commemoration of God's great deliverance of Israel from Egypt back in Exodus 12 and 13. If you remember, it's at that time that the angel of death passed over, hence Passover, he passed over the, the households of the Israelites and slayed all the firstborn of Egypt, both human and beast. And if you remember, it was at that time, after that slaying of the Egyptian firstborn, that Pharaoh initially let the people go. And so the Israelites, as instructed by Moses, who was instructed by God, then left Egypt hastily. They left Egypt in a rush. They didn't have time to make adequate preparations. For example, for, to allow for the yeast in their bread to rise, for even their bread to develop. So only unleavened bread was what they took at the time. Well, because they left in a rush and in great haste, 
And in order to commemorate that swift and rushed departure, God instructed the Israelites in Deuteronomy 16, verse 3, to celebrate what is called a feast of unleavened bread in remembrance, commemorating their departure, their swift and rushed departure from Egypt. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was so interconnected, by the way, with the Passover, that they were often thought of as one feast. That's the reason why they're mentioned together in verse 14, if you notice. So this is a a very strategic time when Jesus begins preparing for his death. But listen, for the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin is the ruling body of the Jews. This is the worst possible time for them to get rid of Jesus. The text says that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him, notice, by what? Stealth. By stealth and kill him. By stealth means secretly. None of this was openly. All of this was subtle, behind the scenes, plotting, scheming, conspiring, campaigning. Why? Because they know what's at stake. Look at verse 2. For they were saying, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, not during the festival. Let's not go after him during the festival. Otherwise, there might be a riot of the people. This speaks to their motives just a bit, doesn't it? See, they know that Jesus is popular with the fickle crowds. We've seen this before. They're aware, these religious leaders, that though the multitudes don't believe Jesus to be God... They have a wrong understanding of who Jesus is. They did consider him to be some great prophet, some great teacher, some compassionate man, some great wonder worker. And so they're worried about the reactions of the crowd should they openly get rid of him. That's what they have in their minds. Furthermore, take note of this. These cowards are concerned that if a riot happens... They're going to bring negative attention to themselves in that they cannot control the Jewish people. Rome will take notice. Rome has entrusted to them, to to the Sanhedrin, this ruling body of the Jews, a delegated authority over the Jewish people in matters of laws and all of that to rule their own people within certain parameters under Rome. And so, if an upheaval takes place, amongst the Jewish people, because they go after Jesus, they know that they're going to lose control of their Rome-given authority. They're going to lose that. So they're worried on two fronts, the possible upheaval of the people, two, losing control from Rome. And so here are these high-ups, the Jewish aristocracy, plotting, conspiring secretly to do what? Notice in verse 2, to kill him. To kill him. Boy, I underlined that in my Bible the first time I read Mark. I mean, it's one thing to inwardly hate someone. It's one thing to inwardly be bitter at someone. But you don't want to do them physical harm. It's a whole other level to get to the point where you so hate somebody. You're so embittered towards somebody. In this case, Jesus, that they actually want to murder him. They actually want to kill him. This was the extent and the intensity of their disdain and hatred toward our Lord. They've had it with Jesus. They want to end his life. These are his enemies. These are his foes. And we'll meet one other later on. But not everyone hated Jesus, right? Look secondly, beloved, at Jesus' friends. Jesus' friends. And really one friend in particular in verses 3 through 9 becomes the focus of And the one who Mark highlights. Here is the stark contrast in verses 3 through 9 of these hateful conspirators. Okay? Now this is very important, so you need to pay attention. Okay? Because what we have here in verses 3 through 9 and later verses 10 through 11. So verses 3 through 11 is a flashback moment in the narrative of Mark. In other words, verses 3 through 11 are out of sequence. As Mark is telling the story of Jesus going to the cross. We've all seen those movies, right? Where all of a sudden you're watching this movie and and there's a scene in the movie where you're, you're transported to the past. To a moment or a situation in the life of one of the characters, maybe the main character in the movie that took place in the past. 
gospel. Listen, that's what you have here in verses 3 through 11. Mark inserts verses 3 through 11 out of sequence to make a particular point. And you say, how do you know this, Pastor? How do you know that this is out of sequence and that this happened before verses 3 through 11? Well, we know this because of John chapter 12, verses 2 through 8. It, that particular text, John 12, 2 through 8, is the exact same episode that we have here. And there in John chapter 12, verse 1, we're told that this particular scene, this special meal that took place, that Mark is telling us, took place, ready for this, six days before the Passover. Six days before the Passover. Passover is on Friday. So what does that mean? John 12, 1 is telling us that this scene took place last Saturday. If we're following the narrative of Mark, verses 3 through 11 happened four days ago. Last weekend, one day before Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Sunday. Very key. You ask, Pastor, why would Mark, and Matthew too, by the way, does this, place this account out of sequence? Why would he do that? And the answer is that the gospel writers often do this in order to meet the purposes of their particular gospel. Sometimes they'll insert something out of sequence in their gospel narrative. Always keep that in mind as you're reading through the gospels. Because people point out supposed contra- um, contradictions in the gospels, and they're not paying attention to these kinds of details, right? Right? In this case, verses 1 through 2 and 10 through 11 later speak about the conspirators and the conspiracy to kill Jesus. But sandwiched in between, in verses 3 through 9, Mark wants to show us and inserts these verses in this scene to show us the stark contrast to the friends of Christ and especially of one commendable woman who has a wholehearted devotion before the Lord. We'll see her. So here we go. Flashback from the past, right? Verse 3, while he was in Bethany, again, this is four days ago on Saturday, at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table. Mark is essentially telling us, let me tell you readers, here's a stark opposite of the hypocrisy and the hatred of the religious leaders. Let me tell you about someone who really understands and understood the significance of who Jesus is and what he was about to do. Last Saturday, there's a special meal In the home of a man by the name of Simon the leper. Obviously, by the time the man hosted the meal, he would have already been healed, right? Otherwise, he would have been separating himself away from people, not inviting people over his house for a meal where they're going to be close together. And Simon's house, note, is in Bethany. Bethany. Remember that since his arrival to Jerusalem last Saturday... Bethany has been Jesus' headquarters of operation for Passion Week as he heads to the cross. Bethany was about two miles away from Jerusalem. So Jesus has been going back and forth from Bethany, about two miles away, through the Kidron Valley, and then ascending to the temple of Jerusalem. This has been his headquarters of operation. Well, last Saturday, something amazing happened at this special meal. It was over... This meal noticed that in the home of a man by the name of Simon the leper, there came a woman in the midst of that meal. Sometime in there. Meals for the Jews were long. There was a lot of conversation. They used to recline and so that they could have this prolonged conversation and they were not rushed. Sometime in this meal, there came a woman. We don't know why, but Mark doesn't name the woman. But again, we know from John chapter 12 and verse 3, who this woman is, her name is Mary. Let's call her Mary of Bethany, because there's a lot of Marys in the Gospels. Mary of Bethany. And she's the younger sister of Martha of Bethany. We know this from the end of Luke 10, verse 39, that she is the younger sister of Martha. And, listen to this, she is the the sister of the infamous Lazarus of Bethany, whom Jesus has raised from the dead in John chapter 11. So it's Mary, Martha, Lazarus, all family members, and all special friends of Jesus are there at this meal. And so picture it. You have those individuals there. You have the host, Simon the leper, maybe some of his own family members. We don't get the details in the text. 
It may be that some of his family members were there. You have the Lord Jesus, who is the, who is the guest of honor. You have Jesus' disciples, all of them his friends, minus who? Judas Iscariot, who is definitely not Jesus' friend. He's there at this meal. You have Martha and Lazarus of Bethany, and who knows who else. But the one who takes the spotlight after Jesus is this woman named Mary. Look at verse 3. There came a woman with an alabaster vial. This alabaster vial was a flask, sort of like a a flask, which was made of clear marble-like stone. She comes with this, with this flask that is designed to, to store and preserve precious, fragrant oils. And she comes with this flask full of, the text says, very costly perfume. Very costly perfume of pure nard. Nard was a a plant that was native to India. Many expensive, precious fragrances were imported at the time from India. And notice, it's pure. It's a very costly perfume of pure nard. In other words, unadulterated. Not fake. Not imitation. We understand that, right? Have you ever gone to look for your favorite perfume or cologne in a fragrance store in the mall and it turned out that it was an imitation? How many of you have done that? Okay, all of you are not as dumb as I am, right? Many years ago, I had this favorite cologne to escape in the 90s. How many of you wore that, man? You you guys are lying. Come on. Thank you. Thank you, brother. I love that cologne. Escape. Eventually, they discontinued it, and I couldn't find it anywhere. And I remember one time going to the mall and going into this fragrance store, and, um, and I'm, I see the bottle, Escape. It's like, run over to Andrea. She's like, why are you so excited about this? <laughs> Purchased the bottle, went home. Turned out that that thing was so diluted. It was watery. It just wasn't the same. It was an imitation. Look, that's not what we have here. This is authentic, pure fragrance. This is expensive, precious perfume that this woman has. And so sometime during dinner, as Jesus and everyone is reclining at the table over a meal, here enters this woman with her precious flask of expensive, precious perfume that is authentic. And watch this. this is the, she does the unthinkable. And she broke the vial. And poured it over his head. Now this is huge. This is huge what she does here. And at first glance, this is really excessive and over the top kind of behavior. At first glance. I mean, just imagine. Just imagine. I know that this is not a parallel kind of an example. But just imagine one of you ladies who purchased an expensive perfume. Not one of these imitation deals. I mean a legit expensive perfume. And you spent a lot of money buying this perfume. And let's just say for a minute that one of the pastors comes over for dinner. Let's say Pastor Alex. We'll throw him under the bus because he's a good sport. Say Pastor Alex comes over for dinner and his precious wife Cindy is there. And as you guys are hanging out with Pastor Alex and just having a great time chatting and all of that, here comes one of your kids, ladies. And they are carrying your precious, costly perfume. And that little rascal proceeds to take the cap off and they pour it all over Pastor Alex's head. And it flows all the way down to his whole body, down to his toes. Because he's wearing flip-flops while he's there at dinner, right? It's all over the place. What would be your reaction? You say, oh, come on, Pastor Kim. That would never happen. That's ridiculous and unrealistic. I know, okay? Just go with it for crying out loud. Indulge me. I know it's not quite a parallel, right? But it would be audacious behavior for you. Well, listen, the custom, what this woman does here, wasn't completely from left field like that. The custom of the day was to honor people and guests, to show courtesy to to people and guests by doing things like washing the feet of your guests, pouring ointment on someone's head, etc., Remember, this is a time when personal hygiene items 
were not as readily available today. They couldn't just go to Walmart, get some deodorant, get some perfume, get some cologne, etc. They couldn't just go to the mall and buy some perfume from Macy's, all right? So you couldn't do that at this time. So it was customary and it was a, a kind gesture for a host to do this. But this woman goes way beyond what was expected. Way beyond. Rather than using this perfume in, in moderation, what does she do? She pours the whole thing on Jesus. Everything. Every last drop. Now you can tell that this is excessive. This was an excessive act and it was uncommon because look at verse 4. But some, probably to some extent, Jesus' disciples are whispering to one another this. But John chapter 12 and verse 4 makes it loud and clear who this really came from. Judas Iscariot, John 12, 4. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, speaks up. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? John 12, 5. Those were the words of Judas. Now think about this as a side note. This is a flashback of last Saturday. Since last Saturday, Judas was already contemplating how to betray Jesus. That's how hostile this man was. That's how hateful he was. Since days ago. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Same here in Mark 14.4. Why has this perfume been wasted, they were saying. For this perfume might have been sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. Good way to justify yourselves, right? Oh, we have the poor in mind. They're expressing their disapproval. And Judas, with a sense of evil hatred, is saying this. They viewed this act by Mary as a waste. 300 denarii, by the way, was one year's wages for a common blue-collar worker. One year's wages. This is why they're saying, what a waste. This is excessive. This is over-the-top kind of behavior. I mean, what if this woman had potentially used up all of her savings? At minimum, she could have sold this bottle, this very costly perfume, and set it aside for the future. I mean, a woman's livelihood was very much dependent upon her husband. What if Mary wasn't married? And she needed to save this money in order to have a somewhat of a future and be able to care for herself. Well, all of this highlights the reason why, notice at the end of verse 5, and they were scolding her. They were scolding her. Imperfect tense verb. They were continually scolding her. Continually berating her. Continually expressing their outrage at her. What she did makes no sense to them. They're more focused, brothers and sisters, on the materialism, on the possession, on the waste of the money, rather than on devotion to Christ. But Jesus said in verse 6, let her alone. Our Lord, his evaluations and assessments in all of these accounts are always authoritative in the final word, right? He corrects them. Verse 6, let her alone. Imperative verb. That's a command. With urgency, he orders them, leave her alone. Why do you bother her? And here's his verdict. She, Mary, has done a good deed to me. Do you notice, by the way, that Jesus doesn't correct her? He doesn't correct her behavior. Hey, lady, what do you think you're doing? I'm just a man. I'm just a man. I'm Jesus of Nazareth. I'm just a man. He doesn't ever correct her. No. Here is yet another support, beloved, for the deity of Christ, right? That Jesus is God and he's worthy of all worship, including what this woman does. You see, in the Jewish culture, anyone who dared attribute such lavish devotion to a mere man like this was considered blasphemous. If Jesus was just a man, he should have shut this lady down. But Jesus isn't just a man. He's God. He is the God-man. He is the King. And he's worthy of everything that she's doing for him. Amen? Worthy of all worship. 
But there's also another significant thing here. Reason why she does this. Notice in verse 7. Jesus says, For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish you can do good to them. He's not downplaying the poor here. For years I read people who, were, who would say things like, you know, it seems like Jesus is downplaying this here. And that Christians downplay the importance of caring for the poor because of what Jesus says here. That's not what he's doing. He's stating a historical fact that you always have the poor. You've always had poor people in a broken and fallen world. They're always going to be around and you will have opportunity to help them continually. But here's the reason why what Mary's done is significant. But you do not always have me. You do not always have me. What's he referencing? He's alluding to his suffering and death that would soon come, right? He's been speaking of it to the disciples for a while. I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be delivered to the hands of godless men. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise from the dead. He's been talking about it over and over and over again. Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 10. He's been telling his disciples about this. He's going to the cross And this little lady, Mary, a humble woman, knows that Jesus is going to die. She won't have Jesus around for very much longer. So you know what she does? She seizes upon the moment to honor the Lord and to help prepare him for his impending death. That's how much she loved him. Verse 8, Jesus says she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Normally, washing and anointing happened after a person was dead. But here, she does this beforehand out of devotion to Jesus. And it's now certain, especially from a human perspective, as she believes that he's going to the cross, that he's definitely going to go to the cross, right? She prays him for burial. Now look at the commendation that she receives in verse 9. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached to the, in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. What an affirmation. What a commendation. Wherever the gospel, the gospel is the good news concerning the person and the work of Jesus, wherever this gospel is preached, this woman... What she has done will be a memorial. This is the ultimate commendation. Wherever and whenever Jesus is preached, people will hear of the great act of honor and devotion performed by this humble woman. What a commendation. And we should ask, what motivated this woman to such a lavish and sacrificial act, brothers and sisters? What was her motivation for doing this. She concerned about pleasing people around her? Was she concerned about what other people thought? I'm sure it went through her mind that if she does this, the reaction of the people who are there is probably going to be most likely very negative. And indeed it was. I'll tell you what motivated this lavish and sacrificial act by this woman. It was love for her Lord. Love for Him. Because she loved and treasured Jesus. Listen to me. She held nothing back from Him. Nothing. To her, Jesus was worth every last drop of her precious possession. Her most precious possession. By the way, this is not the the first time that Mary of Bethany has shown such devotion. At the end of Luke chapter 10, you remember the Mary and Martha scenario where for the first time they host Jesus in the home of Martha? And Martha's running around preparing everything to host Jesus and his disciples. And she's, Jesus says she's worried and just um, running around with these preparations. She's worried and anxious about all of these things. And Jesus essentially in a loving, indirect way corrects her attitude. And what does he say about Mary? Mary has chosen the good thing, right? What is that? Sitting at my feet, listening to my word. Mary is a devoted woman. 
And so what Mark wants us to know here is that sandwiched in between, here is a woman who loved and understood to some extent or another Jesus' impending death, and she wants to be devoted to him. She shows the ultimate act of devotion. And brethren, how about us today? How about us today? Granted, we don't have the opportunity to pour out a whole flask of precious perfume upon a a physical, in-the-body Savior, as Mary did, having Jesus there physically present. But the principle of wholehearted devotion applies to us, doesn't it? It does. What place does Jesus have in your heart this morning? Is He highly esteemed? How lavish... And extravagant is your love for and devotion to Christ. Is He worth it all? Can you say, all I have is Christ like that great song? Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Can you say that Christ is enough? That were you not to have good health? That were you not to be healed physically? That were you not to be in a better financial situation? in a better job situation, that were you to stay in heathen California and never have the opportunity to move away from California, that if none of those things change, Jesus is enough. Could you say that? This woman could. See, we hold back so much from Christ, don't we? We hold so much back from Him. We hold back our private devotion and worship. We hold back Even worship on Sunday mornings. You might show up on Sunday morning. Maybe that's you this morning. Just distracted. You've heard nothing about the message. You've heard nothing about the songs. You've heard nothing about body life through the announcements. Maybe you've just been so distracted, so preoccupied by the worries and the anxieties of life that, I mean, you couldn't even sing. You couldn't even utter those beautiful words of worship to your Savior. Because you're so fixated by the things that are taking place in our world and in your life and those trials. We hold back a lot from our Lord. We hold back our time and resources. Some of us don't even give to the Lord financially out of the first fruits. Some of us withhold from Him service. If you are a believer this morning, he's given you gifts and abilities, spiritual gifts and even God-given abilities, talents that he expects you, Christian, to use for his glory, to use for the edification and the building up of the people of this body, to experience a supernatural sense of fulfillment that the Spirit of God gives you, to know, man, I use my spiritual gifts, abilities, talents, Boy, there's a sense of satisfaction that comes knowing that I glorified my great Savior and I built up and edified my brethren as I'm using my gifts. Why are you holding back wholehearted devotion in these areas? We hold back from Him by holding on to our sin. We hold back wholehearted, undivided devotion to Jesus by holding on to our sin. Secret sin. You know what those are. Public sin that everybody can see. You hold back from Jesus by holding on to your sin, coddling sin in private, not repenting of it. And what you need to realize this morning is to not repent of your secret sin means that you are loving and elevating that sin or sins above Jesus. You're putting that sin and that pleasure, sinful pleasure, above Jesus in your heart. And the only one who belongs on the throne chair of your heart is Christ. Jesus. And see, it's not just about focusing on the externals, but those outward things point to an inward problem of the heart, don't they? They point to to a deficiency of love for Christ. They point to our love growing cold, beloved, perhaps indifferent to Jesus. And that's what God is most concerned about, what's going on in our hearts. And so what we glean from this woman's wholehearted devotion is that we must not be okay with complacency and be content with giving God half of us, 
half of ourselves, part of ourselves. We must never be content with giving God the scraps from our lives. With giving Him the bare minimum. With being status quo Christians. Hear me. There is no such thing as a radical Christian and then other types of Christians. If by that you mean radical Christians, people who spend time in the Word, who love Christ, who are struggling with their own sin, but seeking to live well under their trials and repenting and putting on Christ every single day. If you're talking radical about somebody who's following Jesus, who even in the midst of their weaknesses and struggles, seeks to serve Christ, knowing that by His grace they do what they do, and in the power of the Spirit. If you're talking about that type of a person and you call him a radical Christian, there is no such thing that is a believer. Struggling people who live by the grace of God. Amen? Weak people. Who is adequate for these things? Who is adequate to live the Christian life in the midst of these difficulties and trials that we live in today? None of us are. Our adequacy comes from who? From God. No radical Christian. You're either a Christian or you're not. And all of us are struggling to some extent or another. We live by the grace of God. Amen? Do you remember how Jesus answered back in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, when asked about the greatest commandment? What did he answer? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. In other words, I want all of you, says God. I want all or nothing. No competitors. No rivals. That's what God wants from us. Oh, beloved, this, this little lady... Is a, is a picture of that, isn't she? A sinner herself, struggling woman with her own weaknesses, flesh and blood just like us, but captivated by Jesus. Sitting at the feet of Jesus at the end of Luke 10, listening to his word. That was the most important thing for her. And she's willing to put aside materialism and possession and a sense of her future security to pour out all of this perfume upon Jesus, symbolic of where her heart devotion was, right? She loved Christ above anything. Listen, if this is a lesson for us this morning, it's this. That God wants us to be sold out for Him and for doing His will. And that sense of self-abandonment is not to be reluctant or drudgerous. It's out of a heart of love and gratitude because we understand who Jesus is and what He's done for us. Amen? It's out of a heart of worship. And so note, sandwiched in the middle of the conspirators and the conspiracy is this commendation of this woman who is the ultimate friend of Jesus, a wholehearted, devoted worshiper. But we've seen Jesus' foes, Jesus' friends. Third now, notice Jesus' fate in verses 10 and 11. Jesus' fate. And I realize that when the, you hear the word fate, when the world speaks of fate, it's speaking of something left to chance, left to some impersonal force outside of a person's control. Jesus' fate, his future, his determined future is far different than the world, right? He's going to the cross, but far from out of God's control, it is exactly, beloved, what God intended and preplanned that Jesus would go to the cross. But he chose to use a human instrument, and his name is Judas. Look at verse 10. Then, remember this is a flashback scene, immediately following that dinner, sometime in there, still on Wednesday, then Judas Iscariot, verse 10, who was one of the twelve. I find it interesting that he highlights him as one of the twelve. We know that. We know Judas is one of the twelve. It would have been sufficient for him to just say Judas by name, and that would have been enough. Who doesn't know Judas? But Mark is doing this. He is singling out Judas, isn't he? He's singling him out. It's like when, you, when you're inside of the house, parent, and you know that your kids are playing catch outside baseball, and all of a sudden you're inside of the house and you hear a loud noise of shattered glass. Uh-oh. And you run out, and see that one of the kids has broken a window. Thankfully, everybody's safe. Nobody got hurt. And you ask, who did it? And what typically are the siblings doing? They're yelling, he did it. Everybody's pointing wonder to the guilty party, right? He did it. Throwing their sibling under the bus. This is the idea here. Mark is saying, 
He did it. Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. Don't miss this. He's the traitor. He's the one who would be the ringleader of the greatest conspiracy ever. Mark will continue over and over again to highlight and to pinpoint for us the guilty one, Judas Iscariot. And remember, from a human perspective, who is giving him a lot of the information? Peter. Peter. Verse 10, Judas went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. He goes to Jesus' arch enemies. What a traitor. What a spineless man. Verse 11. They, the chief priests, were glad when they heard this. I mean, this is the moment that they're looking for, right? Their moment has indeed come. This is way too good to be true. Here is their moment, and they're so happy about this. But notice they even promised to give him money. 30 pieces of silver to be exact. For 30 pieces of silver, he betrayed the eternal Son of God. Think about that. And he began looking or seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. We're going to have a chance to get deep into how all of this goes down. But think about this. This man, Judas Iscariot. This man, Judas Iscariot. I mean, who names their kid Judas, by the way? Nobody does, right? Judas Iscariot, who had been around Jesus for three plus years, listening to life-giving words by Jesus, witnessing life-transforming works and miracles. He had been around to see Jesus in the midst of this. He was taken care of personally by Jesus, fed by Jesus, spiritually and physically. There was spiritual food imparted to him. He cared for all of Judas's needs. Judas experienced Jesus' love and his kindness. He had the opportunity in an array of circumstances and interactions that Jesus had with people to see the Lord's compassion and his tenderness towards all kinds of people who are in need. Jesus had held nothing back, beloved, from Judas Iscariot. But none of that exposure to Jesus made a difference to Judas. When push came to shove, 30 pieces of silver to be exact. He betrayed Jesus. Proof that you can be so close to the truth and so far away, right? So close to the truth and yet so far away. Some of you are there this morning. Some of you are Judas's in seed form. You're traitors against Christ. You've heard about Christ. You've heard about his wondrous glory. You sat down over the years under Awana teachers and children's teachers, ministry teachers and, and Sunday school teachers and preaching from various men in this pulpit. Maybe now you're grown up. Maybe you're even older. And you are a traitor at heart. You've never trusted in Christ. You've never submitted your life to the Lordship of Christ You've never confessed your sin, acknowledged that you are a sinner who needs to be saved, and you put your trust in Jesus. You've never done that. You love your sin. You cherish and treasure not Christ, but you cherish and treasure your priorities, your sinful pleasures. You're living life for yourself, you Judas. And every time I read this account of Judas Iscariot and the other gospel accounts, Every time I read and reflect on this man, Judas, I'm filled with fear and trepidation. I'm sure you are too, right? Lord, help me. Help my heart to not grow cold like that, to not go through the motions. Help me to be real. Lord, help Calvary Bible Church to not be full of Judases, but to be full of little, humble, devoted Marys. Help us to be that kind of a church. A church full of Marys, lovers of Christ, wholehearted, devoted to Christ, obedient, loving, sitting at His feet, listening to His Word, cherishing and treasuring the Savior, not ashamed of Christ when we share with other people. May the Lord help us to not be Judas's but Marys. Amen? Now listen, some people look at this whole account and the 
narratives that follow this regarding the death of Christ and everything that leads into that and say, wow, what a tragedy. What a tragedy what these evil people did to poor Jesus. And from the human perspective, yes, what a tragedy. The Jewish leaders and later the Roman leaders were evil men and responsible for the death of Christ from a human perspective. But on the other hand, and most importantly, you need to realize that were it not for God, none of their plans would have succeeded, right? Because God is sovereign and has all authority over all events, big and small, under his creation. Nothing can thwart the plans and the purposes of God. And so what I want to leave us with, and what we're going to look into next week, most of all, is that we need to remember that Jesus' suffering and his death was according to the foreknowledge and predetermined plan of God. Amen? Acts 2.23, Peter says there that Jesus' death was the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And yet Jesus was put to death by the hands of godless men. They were responsible for what they did to Jesus. Absolutely. The blood of Jesus is on their hands and on us who have not trusted in Christ. But ultimately, it was the foreknowledge and predetermined plan of God that put Jesus on the cross. It was His will, the will of God, hear me, that Jesus suffer and die on the cross. And so let me ask you a question. Who killed Jesus in an ultimate sense? God. That's right. God put Jesus on that cross. Why did He do it? Why did He do it? First and foremost, to glorify himself, but he chose to do it in the salvation of sinners, right? Think about that. God could have chosen to glorify himself and bring maximum glory to himself in an array of ways, but the maximum way that he chose to bring glory to himself is in sending his son Jesus to live the perfect life that we should live but never can to die on the cross for our sins, paying for our sins, rising from the dead on the third day, conquering sin and death. God chose to glorify Himself by sending His Son Jesus into the world to do that so that by faith we might have salvation. I find that just amazing. Amazing. Jesus died first and foremost to glorify God, but how did God choose by His grace to chiefly glorify Himself? It's through the salvation of sinners, the greatest of sinners such as you and I. That is just amazing, isn't it? That's amazing. Titus 3, 4, But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, how did it appear? Well, through the person and the work of Christ. When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, to God's mercy. Oh, some of us have tasted, beloved, of this mercy, whereby God has withheld His punishment from us and put it on Christ. That is mercy, withholding His punishment aimed in our direction. And instead, God has given us grace, undeserved favor, undeserved blessing because we've trusted in Jesus Christ, forgiveness, eternal life, and part of a new heavens and a new earth in the future, everything that pertains to life and godliness. The Spirit of God who is the down payment of our redemption, of our inheritance rather. So many blessings He's given us instead. Some of us have tasted of this, all of this in Christ. But others of you have not come to believe in the Lord Jesus. And my prayer for you, for some of you this morning, is that you would not be like Judas. That you would not be like this man, a hearer of the truth, but not a doer. Who didn't receive by faith God's salvation. And the very one that could give him salvation was standing before his very eyes. And for three and a half years, he was close to the truth. The personified truth of the Lord Jesus. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Trust Christ. Put your trust in Christ. Today is the day of salvation if you are not saved. Call upon the name of the Lord that he might save you. Put your trust in Jesus alone. Let's pray. Father, 
Oh, Lord, we really tread upon the Holy of Holies when we enter these passages about your Son. Because this was why he came. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. That by faith in Christ, we can actually be forgiven of our sins and receive eternal life. Be reconciled to you, our maker, our creator. And live out our purpose to glorify you and enjoy you. Oh Lord, I pray that that would be impressed upon our hearts again and again and again. And for those of us who are Christians, who are followers of Christ, who are resting in Christ, may we be reminded once again, Lord, of our great salvation. That we might be like this woman, Mary, a devoted, wholehearted worshiper of you. People who want to make Christ known to this world. And that we would do it both in word and by the way that we live in our devotion. In our great sense of rejoicing in the future glory that is to come. May the world see this in our lives, Father. Both as individuals, as families, and as a local church. Here at Calvary, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.